You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. As President Biden signed an executive order on Friday to protect access to abortion, he criticized the Supreme Court. As the justice wrote in their dissent, and I quote, the majority has overruled Roe and Casey for one and only one reason, because it has always despised them. And now it has the votes to discard them, end of quote. So what we're witnessing wasn't a constitutional judgment. It was an exercise in raw political power. This term, the Supreme Court issued sweeping decisions that will reverberate for decades, wiping out the constitutional right to abortion, expanding gun rights, limiting the EPA's ability to address climate change, and upending the law on church and state. Each of these decisions fractured the court along ideological lines, with the three liberal justices in the minority and the six conservative justices in the majority, often ignoring precedent. Joining me is constitutional law expert Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. How would you describe this past term at the Supreme Court? I mean, I think in a word it was stunning. You know, I think it was as conservative a term as we've seen in our lifetimes. I think the number of high-profile precedent shifting and, in some cases, precedent overruling decisions, truly not something we've ever seen in a long time. And I think it's having already a profound impact, not just on the state of our constitutional law, but on the state of our country and on the state of our politics. I think this is a Supreme Court where you clearly have a court that's increasingly reflective of the polarization of the country, but also a conservative majority that just sees no reason to be at all moderate or conciliatory. I think we're seeing the effects of that. 19 cases were decided by six to three votes. Does that show just how polarized this court has become? When we talk about the court splitting, you know, we might say ideologically, the numbers used to be in the low double figures, if not the high single figures. And so 19 is quite a number. But June, keep in mind, not only is that 19 by itself, it's 19 out of the self-selecting set of cases that justices are agreeing to hear, where this term for the third term in a row 
there were fewer than 60 signed decisions and merits cases, you know, a total the court had not previously stooped to since the Civil War. So it's not just that it's 19 of them, it's that it's 19 out of a pretty small and self-selecting total. It's a pretty powerful reflection of just how ideologically divided the court is and sort of how the old narratives about the court being, you know, one of strange bedfellows and one that actually tries for moderation just doesn't apply to the term at all. Except for the decision reversing Roe v. Wade, Chief Justice Roberts has voted with the conservative majority in those hot-button cases. So is he really trying to mitigate the court's trend toward the right or not? I think the answer is it depends. You know, if we take into account the high-profile rulings on the shadow docket, these emergency orders, I do think we saw more examples of Chief Justice Roberts breaking from the conservatives. He joined the liberals in dissenting from the Alabama redistricting decision in February. He joined the liberals in dissenting from the Clean Water Act decision in April. But I think what we're really seeing in June is that the difference between Chief Justice Roberts and the rest of the conservatives is not where he wants to end up in these cases. It's how he thinks the court should get there. And more often this term than not, that was a distinction that didn't matter in cases like the religion cases or West Virginia versus EPA versus the handful of cases where it did matter, where we did see him break from the other conservatives. There are a lot of cases that didn't lead to as much upheaval across the country as abortion, but cases where they reversed or ignored precedent or changed the rules. Tell us about a few of them, the gun rights, the climate change, the school prayer. Yeah, I mean, you know, we could do an hour, I think, on any of them. One of the things about this term is that there were at least six or seven decisions and any other term would have been the defining decision of the term. I think the gun rights case, Bruin, is going to be enormously important, not because of the specific issue that was involved, that is to say, these shall issue or may issue regimes for public carry of firearms, but because the majority went out of its way to completely reconfigure the test for how Second Amendment rights should be considered. I think that new test is going to provoke a lot of litigation, but a lot of litigation is going to end with gun regulations that used to be upheld being struck down. The majority opinion by Justice Thomas really is hostile to any gun regulations that don't have some kind of deep historical roots. And that's going to be a real problem for things like assault weapons bans or age limits or things like that. The religion cases, you know, I think the court really took a healthy bite out of, if not altogether gutted, the Establishment Clause, where it used to be that governments, school districts, public actors were allowed to, if not required to, take into account the very, very distinct possibility that endorsing religious practice or funding religious schools would actually be establishing religion because it would be preferring religion over irreligion and preferring some religions over others. And we saw the court at the end of the term really take a healthy bite out of what the Establishment Clause actually protects. We saw the court sort of quietly overrule Lemon versus Kurtzman, this significant Establishment Clause precedent, so that it's going to be a lot easier going forward for school districts to encourage prayer. It's going to be a lot harder for states to avoid funding religious education. And I think those effects are going to be felt really across the gamut of religious liberty challenges. So I'm wondering, for a lawyer going to argue a case next term before the Supreme Court, do you bother to argue precedent? Do you bother to argue (laughs) the methods of interpretation that the court has used? Because it seems like the court's willing to ignore them. The Scottish writer Andrew Lang has this great line about using statistics the way that a drunk uses a lamppost for support (laughs) rather than illumination. 
And I think that tour had in with precedent. I think, you know, the reality is that this is a court that will be perfectly happy to rely upon precedent in those cases where the precedent points the justice toward the answer they want to reach. But, you know, June, I think the bloom is off the road when it comes to whether this court is going to follow any precedent that the justices don't agree with simply because they're precedent. I think the answer there is clearly no. And once you cross that bridge, once the court has said there are five votes that are willing to overrule cases just because five justices think they're wrong, that really opens up an incredibly broad waterfront of arguments that can be made, of precedents that can be challenged, and, you know, really is sort of no hold barred going forward. And I think one of the questions folks should be asking themselves is even if they like the results the courts reach in in some of these cases, is a court in this kind of a hurry really a healthy thing for our constitutional system? I think, you know, there's a reason to be a bit worried about that. Coming up, I'll continue this conversation with Professor Stephen Vladek, and we'll talk about whether it's originalism, textualism, or something else. This is Bloomberg. As the Supreme Court erased the constitutional right to abortion, nullified state gun control laws, and limited the power of the EPA to fight climate change, Democratic governors promised to step into the void and take action. Here are New York Governor Kathy Hochul, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, and California Governor Gavin Newsom. No matter what the Supreme Court thinks they can do, New Yorkers, you are protected. We have made sure our state law protects a woman's right to an abortion. And today, because of this ruling and the fallout from it, we unequivocally extend this protection to every American woman. We've got to wake up to what's going on, Supreme Court, and we've got to double down, quadruple down here in California and in blue states all across America. I've been talking to constitutional law expert Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. Steve, we hear the terms textualism, originalism being thrown around as a way to explain these conservative majority opinions. Tell us what the difference is and what methodology is being used. Well, first, I I mean, I think it depends on what we mean by originalism, since the court itself has applied a couple of different things this term and called it originalism. You know, I think it's clear that originalism and textualism are not the same thing, that when the court says the issue in, for example, the abortion case is not simply the fact that the Constitution's text is silent about abortion, but rather the absence of what the majority calls a deeply rooted historical tradition for a right to pre-viability abortion. You know, that suggests that, June, what we're really doing is history. And ditto the gun case, where Justice Thomas says gun regulations are going to be sort of uh, scrutinized carefully, and the court's going to be skeptical of them, unless there's some historical practice for those kinds of traditions. And I think it's worth stressing, that's not necessarily originalism. To say that we were doing something in the 1840s and 1850s is not a claim about the founders. And yet, this seems to be where the court is, where it's our history that's going to define our constitutional analysis. Never mind, as the dissenters and Dobbs point out quite powerfully, that that history and tradition was formed at a time when only really white men were part of forming it. So I think part of what is so, to me, exasperating, and I think to any lawyer discombobulating, about the major decisions from the end of the term is that there was no one dominant, consistent methodological approach in these cases. It was all just sort of loose appeals to fairly superficial historical analyses in a context in which those histories are themselves contested, and in a context in which it's not clear why those histories ought to be dispositive. 
In the EPA case in dissent, Justice Elena Kagan pointed out that this was the first time that the major questions doctrine magically appeared, and she called it a get-out-of-text-free card. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty striking. So that's another good example of, you know, the sort of the court in a hurry problem. In the Western University EPA case, first of all, you have a challenge to a regulation that isn't even on the books, and yet the court's going out of its way to hand down a pretty significant separation of powers decision. The other thing about Western University EPA, I mean, yes, the court seems not remotely interested in why it's so hard to fathom that Congress in a statute called the Clean Air Act would have given the EPA the power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. But the larger issue, June, is what is the major question, right? I mean, there's very little in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion that gives an objective, easily applied definition for what is the major question and what isn't. And what that means is that it's open season on any regulation that has a significant impact. You know, things like when the FCC hands out broadcast licenses, or when the SEC hands out new you know, investor guidance, or when the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services set new reimbursement rates for pharmaceuticals that apply to every single state. You know, are those major questions? At the end of the day, that's going to be answered not by Congress and not by us. It's going to be answered by district judges. And I think the litigation this is all going to provoke is going to be a jobs program for lawyers. But the result's not going to be, as the court, I think, wants us to believe, you know, more democratic accountability for the executive branch. It's going to be more judicial power and less regulation. And I think that's part of why these decisions are so problematic. That's my next question. In many of these cases, the court would say, well, this is up to Congress or Congress has to say this more exactly. Knowing that Congress is gridlocked and is not going to address this, is the court now more powerful than the other branches, more powerful than it should be? To the first, I don't know how anyone could say the answer is no. You know, the Supreme Court today has power, the likes of which I don't think it's had at any point in its history. And some of that's because of power that the court has claimed for itself. But we ought to be frank, some of that's because we are in a period of political deadlock in Washington. Is it more powerful than it should be? I mean, again, I think it's worth stressing that in The Federalist, right, Madison's argument for why the people of New York should ratify the Constitution with the powers separated the way they were was that ambition ought to be made to counteract ambition. The branches should be made to check each other. And I think what we're seeing is a Supreme Court that's not worried about being checked by anybody. And that's easy for folks who like what the current Supreme Court is doing to not be all that troubled by. But in the long term, I don't know how it's healthy for our system when the court is basically claiming the power for itself, not just to decide what our rights are, that's always been its power, but to decide what Congress must have meant in statutes it wrote a long time ago and how Congress couldn't possibly have meant to delegate authority to agencies that clearly meant to delegate. And, you know, there's an argument that the court makes all the time that in this context, it's simply being pro-democracy. And I think the more we step back and look at the court's work in the aggregate, the more we look at this term in the aggregate, it's not pro-democracy, it's pro-judicial power. And for those who like the current court, that's going to be a good thing. For those who don't, it's going to be a bad thing. But the long term of this country and its history, I don't know how we're all better off being run by five or six unelected justices versus, you know, 536 elected politicians. You mentioned this before. The justices don't even seem to be trying to present a united front anymore. Only 29 percent of cases were unanimous. That's the lowest rate since SCOTUS blog began compiling statistics two decades ago. You know, usually at the end of the term, we say, well, it wasn't as divisive as we thought. But now we look at these numbers (laughs) and it was. Listen, I think there's a reason why conservatives are celebrating the term and progressives are decrying. I mean, this was as dominant a term for one side of the political aisle in American politics 
as we've seen really, frankly, in as long as I can remember. And I don't think that by itself is an indictment of the court. I mean, I think the problem is it's about the cases the justices are taking. It's about the lengths they're going to decide these issues. It's about the inconsistent rationales they're relying upon. It's about the hubris inflecting some of the decisions. And frankly, it's about the complete lack of effort to suggest that the other side's positions are reasonable or worth taking seriously. And in that regard, I think the best thing that can be said about the Supreme Court term is that the Supreme Court is doing its best to look like the country. We ought to expect more from the court, and it ought to be above that. We've heard about friction on the court, and we see some of the dissents. Is there friction among all the justices, or is the friction between the liberal justices and the conservatives? Who knows? This is the kind of thing where people like us are probably in the worst position to speculate. I will just say, I mean, the opinions, of course, did not pull their punches in the justices fighting with each other, and that was not limited to, you know, conservatives versus progressives. I mean, there's a pretty significant case about tribal sovereignty from the end of the term called Castro Huerta, where Justice Gorsuch, you know, goes out of his way in his defense to really mock in various places Justice Kavanaugh's majority opinion. So, you know, I think it's hard to look at the written product from the justices and think that, you know, everything is hunky-dory at one first street. The most we can say is that this is clearly not a court that is getting along as well as its predecessors. Whether that's actually getting in the way of the court's ability to get its work done, you know, I think the best evidence we have for that is what the justices themselves are saying, and at least Justice Thomas, in public remarks he made in May, remarks that I thought were actually fairly ill-advised, you know, certainly seem to be suggesting that all is not well in, in Camelot. And, you know, I think that, at the end of the day, I, I don't know that anyone's going to lose sleep over the fact that the justices aren't necessarily getting along, except that it's yet another symptom of how the polarization of the court is increasingly reflective of the polarization of the country in a way that's really unhealthy for both. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was sworn in last week. I was thinking, well, I wonder what's in her mind, because she's joining a court where she basically has no power at all, because the liberal justices don't seem to have any power. It'll be interesting to see what we see and hear from Justice Jackson as she, you know, acclimates to the new position. I mean, I think Obviously, her confirmation, her swearing in is not going to move the center of gravity on the court. But are there opportunities that a new justice has, you know, to build friendships, to forge alliances, to add a voice to the court's deliberations and decision making that we haven't seen before? And, you know, I think there we'll just have to see. We'll have to see, you know, how she votes. We'll have to see what she writes and we'll have to see, you know, what where we are this time next year. Thanks so much for those insights, Steve. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. The Supreme Court has agreed to use a North Carolina redistricting case to consider adopting a far-reaching legal doctrine that would shift more federal election power to the state legislatures that are now disproportionately controlled by Republicans. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. What's this North Carolina case about? This North Carolina case uh, grows out of a challenge to the state legislature's redistricting of North Carolina's congressional delegation. State legislature is overwhelmingly Republican. There is a Democratic governor that he can be outvoted. His views can be overturned. The legislature adopted a very pro-Republican plan. North Carolina is a pretty close state, but I think it produced something like 13 Republican and three Democratic districts. Here's where it gets interesting. The North Carolina Supreme Court, interpreting the state's constitution, concluded that that was an unconstitutional, under the state constitution's partisan gerrymander, and that it violated 
not a particular provision of the North Carolina Constitution aimed at gerrymandering, but it's general provision dealing with free and fair elections. And so they struck it down and ordered a new plan. That has been challenged by the Republican legislature. And indeed, the Supreme Court just upheld the idea that the Republican legislators could actually sue independently because the Democratic attorney general is not supporting this argument on the theory of what has come to be known as the independent state legislature doctrine. What does that mean? Well, the provision of the Constitution that deals with elections for Congress, Article 1, basically says that the state legislatures shall determine the time, place, and manner of elections for Congress. Congress can override that. But in the first instance, it's the state legislature. The word is legislature. Now, until fairly recently, no one thought that meant the legislature in particular, as opposed to kind of, let's call it the state legislative process. But the question has come up as to whether or not the legislature in some sense is independent of its state constitution, independent of its state Supreme Court, so that when the state Supreme Court interprets the state constitution to set aside what the state legislature has done, that triggers an Article One question, and maybe it's an Article One violation. And that's what's picked up this idea of the independent state legislature doctrine, that somehow the state legislature is actually independent of its own constitution, independent of its own state Supreme Court. This doctrine has been kicking around for about 20 years. And a number of Supreme Court justices have indicated some support for it, primarily in the context of, of presidential elections, because there's a similar provision in Article 2, which uh, deals with the selection of presidential electors. So if the state courts don't have the authority to look at these maps, who does? Who has the authority? Well, at this point, since the Supreme Court has renounced a federal gerrymandering claim, it's not clear anybody really does. I mean, in theory, it would be the U.S. Supreme Court applying the U.S. Constitution could review state legislative plans if they have racial discrimination, for example. But the U.S. Supreme Court has said they're not going to look at plans for partisan gerrymandering. When they said that, in the Rucha case a couple of years ago, they pointed to the role of the states in becoming more active in policing partisan gerrymandering. But this could undo that, depending on exactly what the court does how far it reads uh, the U.S. Constitution as a constraint on the ability of state courts to um, review and undo the decisions of state legislatures. So, as you mentioned, the Republicans have been pushing this theory for decades. Is this the theory they advanced in the dissent in Bush v. Gore? Right. It was a theory embraced by three of the justices in Bush v. Gore, uh, led by Chief Justice Rehnquist. It was not embraced by the majority. It was also a theory that has been uh, alluded to uh, in various concurring and dissenting opinions by, I think, at least three justices of the court during a lot of the fighting over the 2020 presidential election, in which a number of them, Alito, Thomas, uh, maybe even four, uh, Gorsuch, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, indicated some sympathy. And Alito, in fact, said that, that even if the presidential election was over, there was a case that came out of Pennsylvania challenging the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision interpreting Pennsylvania law to give more time for absentee ballots to be counted. In the end, it didn't make any difference, and the court dismissed the case, but Justice Alito said they should have taken the case in order to resolve this question of the independence of the legislature doctrine. It could be significant both for congressional redistricting and potentially for presidential elections. Does it look like they have four votes already? They assume they have four votes to take cert. The question is, well, they have five. And even when they agree that 
there's some review that it's not completely clear how much they would read state courts out of this. It's, it's very unclear what this doctrine will do. I mean, it's hard to believe that state legislatures exist outside their constitution, but that's sort of part of the argument. Some have argued that it might make a difference if the state constitution has a very clear provision that deals with partisan gerrymandering, as opposed to situations where state Supreme Courts are relying on very, very general provisions about the right to vote. But we just don't know what the Supreme Court will do if this court concludes that state legislatures are either unbound by their state constitutions or unbound by state Supreme Court interpretations, whether somehow the U.S. Supreme Court can review state Supreme Court interpretations of state constitutions, which is something they have either never or hardly ever done in modern times. It seems like adopting this independent state legislature doctrine would upend elections across the country. It would certainly do that in situations where state courts have made some decisions, well, especially really interpreting state laws, let alone striking down. I mean, it would apply also not just to these gerrymandering decisions, but it could conceivably apply to like a state Supreme Court interpreting the state's mail-in ballot law in a generous way, which, say, some members of the state legislature oppose. It could also lead to the really odd result that you would have different laws applying to different elections held at the same time. I mean, there would be no basis for using this doctrine for striking down a state Supreme Court's interpretation or an application of a state mail-in ballot law or some other state election law applied to state elections. So you could conceivably have two different rules applying to, say, voter registration or mail-in ballot, one applying to federal elections, one applying to state elections, when both elections are held at the same time. It could be quite chaotic. I mean, this could apply to all kinds of voting measures then, absentee voting, voter ID, curbside it, it, voting. It could apply to anything involving the election of Congress and the Electoral College. Do you read the article as, you know, allowing this? I read it as saying the state legislature is part of the state government, and it's a creature of the state constitution. The state constitution gets interpreted by the state Supreme Court, so that the state legislature is not a freestanding entity, not part of a broader state government. There's some support for my position only in that the Supreme Court in earlier cases that are not literally on point has agreed that state legislature also includes the governor because it's the way in which states make laws. And in every state, the, you need the governor's approval unless, unless the veto is overturned by two-thirds. So I don't think anyone is going to argue that it's the state legislature all by itself. But once you start saying that the state legislature is part of a broader legislative process that includes the governor, then it's hard to say why it isn't part of a process that's constrained by the state constitution and why, if the state constitution is normally interpreted by the state Supreme Court, why well, that shouldn't happen in this setting, too. And what this would do, because Republicans control, uh, what is it, 30 out of 52 state legislatures? Yeah, I don't have the number, but it's not an inherently pro-Republican doctrine. But just right now, especially if you look at so many of the you know, so-called you know, battleground states like Georgia and Arizona, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, all have Republican legislatures, North Carolina, even though many of them have Democratic governors, but often the, as a result of state legislative gerrymandering, the state legislative majority is so lopsided 
that a Democratic governor can be overruled. Now, some of them also have Republican governors, but, you know, it really, it could matter a lot in places like North Carolina and Ohio and Pennsylvania. Um, and also, some of these states have Republican courts, but what you get in places like North Carolina and Pennsylvania, the majority of the current justices of the state Supreme Court are Democrats. Majority of the legislature is, re- is strongly Republican. Republican state legislatures in some states have been trying to take authority over the administration of elections from the nonpartisan election officials, the secretaries of state. Does this fit in with that? Is this one more move that way? In a way, it is. In some way, it's a more, I'd say, constitutional move, whereas the others are more raw politics in the sense that they're literally taking power from one institution and giving it to another because one of them is Democratic and one's Republican, or one's nonpartisan and one would be Republican. Um, so in some sense, that's even roar, but it's of a piece of trying to control the rules that determine elections as a way of winning elections. Not just persuading the public, but, you know, running the rules. A similar provision governs the appointment of presidential electors. So could this also open the door, if it's accepted, to state legislatures sending their own slates of electors? It could. I mean, again, I think people see it more in the context of the laws governing presidential elections. And there's lots of questions about what the state legislatures could do about the electors, and particularly if they're making it, it's, if they were to make a decision after election day. But it certainly affects how state legislatures can write the rules that govern the election of presidential electors. If anything, it's stronger because the one for Congress, for the House and Senate, Constitution allows Congress to override that although our current Congress is unlikely to do that. But the, actually, Article 2 doesn't even have that, that escape hatch. What about independent redistricting commissions? Would this theory also cause problems there? I mean, that's a challenge. I mean, in 2015, the Supreme Court upheld an independent redistricting commission against a challenge. They had violated Article 1's uh, commitment of time, place, and manner of elections to the legislature, but it was a 5-4 decision. And Justice Ginsburg, who wrote the majority opinion, is now gone. So the five are are no longer there. Uh, And Chief Justice Roberts dissented in that case. Now, Roberts, when he wrote the Supreme Court's opinion in Rucho, saying that that there's no federal constitutional claim on gerrymandering, actually cited that independent redistricting cases as support for the idea that that states might have alternative ways of dealing with gerrymandering. So he's kind of in a funny position. Again, it might depend on exactly what the independent commissions do. If they're totally independent and entirely cut the legislature out of the process, or if they create recommendations that the legislature has to consider, um, much would depend on exactly the connection between them and and the state legislature. But yeah, it is quite possible that this would be a basis for holding that it would be unconstitutional, even if a state did, did this by state constitutional amendment, that it would be unconstitutional for the state to delegate redistricting of, of congressional seats to an independent redistricting commission. That's the real challenge. It's the idea that, that somehow the state legislature is supreme over its own state constitution. That's what's so perplexing about this, this doctrine. And we've seen this term, this past term, the Supreme Court 
change course in, on doctrine in the EPA case, mm-hmm. in the religion mm-hmm. in schools case. So, I mean, it seems like a court that's willing to adopt new doctrine. It certainly is. Thanks, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafault of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.